0: Hi Janina. Hi Uma. How you doing? I'm all right. How are you? I'm all right. I'm in a cupboard. I'm experimenting with a new recording setup, and I'm yeah. now in a wardrobe. And Livia is very freaked out. <laughs> 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 she is just looking at me as if, in the same way that she looks at me the one time a year that I have a bath, and she's like, Jesus Christ, are you all right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> what is going on? Is everyone dying?
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, but apart from that, I'm all good. We had a nice break over Christmas. Yeah,
1: yeah. Had a nice uh, just time off, sitting
0: around yeah. watching films. Watching films, eating yeah. cheese, um, doing not a lot else. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, welcome back to History is Sexy. Yeah. Uh,
1: where we answer your questions about history, because research is hard so you don't want you you don't want to do it we we do it and when i say we i mean emma does loads of it and i do a little bit
0: (laughs) yeah um but together um we come together to make something beautiful yeah or at least useful
1: (laughs) or at least existing
0: yeah um amusing maybe
1: (laughs) what are we talking about this week
0: This week we have a question uh, from Loy Bergenhaus and the question is what's the history of Petra which you were not thrilled about.
1: Well no I was thrilled I just didn't find as interesting stuff as you because I'm established (laughs) not as good at research but Petra is one of those places that's like mythical and interesting because it's like beautiful and pink and carved into rocks and um, ancient and all of that, and then it's it seems like an exciting place to go and visit. And then yeah. um, all all the reading I did about it was, um, you know, I don't know. I wanted, I I don't know. I didn't. I'm excited to find the, to hear the the exciting stuff that you found because I didn't find. You read
0: the, yeah, you read the wrong history. I, apparently, um, I did. <laughs> but yeah, but Petra is very very cool as a place. Um, and if you Google it, you will only see one building. Um, because <laughs> if you Google it, you only see um, it's sometimes called the Treasury, um, but it's actually a tomb that has this like big tomb carved into a rock face, basically like it. Um, yeah, which like is a very big cool. Facade, which is incredibly cool. Um, but it is a whole city, and it was a big city at the height of its um, the height of its power. It housed about thirty thousand people. Uh, and it was pretty significant. Like, it's not a small place with one one thing in it.
1: And they got, like, super rich there. They
0: they did, tra- which is how they, they could afford rich to build cool stuff.
1: Trading lots of stuff.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So, in case you don't know where it is, Petra is in Jordan, modern-day Jordan, um, in the Negev Desert, which is southwest Jordan. So it's kind of at the bottom of Jordan and the top of Saudi Arabia, basically. Um. And it was the centre of the Nabataean kingdom um, Mm. from the 2nd-ish, 3rd century BC, definitely, um, all the way through to the 8th century CE, um, which people did not think that it was inhabited for that long. Uh, But there is, and this will shock you, um, a long history of weird shit around um, basically Europe, the way that Europeans see it.
1: Yeah, uh, you're, you're uh, saying that that Europeans made assumptions about a place they didn't understand.
0: Yeah, basically. Mm. Yeah. Um, also, this is very okay. So I'll do. I'm going to do this bit first because it's really really funny. But basically, it is this city that is in a um, in a valley between a range of sandstone mountains of like big sandstone mountains which are like four, 600 metres high. Um, and the only way that you can get to it is to go through this 1.5 kilometre long um, winding path called the Seek, um, which is kilometre and a half long. Um, mm-hmm. It's like the walls go up like 200 feet. And... Um, and it is, in some places, only two metres wide.
1: Yeah, so you can trot, trot in on a donkey, single file, that's it. Yeah. Which is one you, of the reasons that it was able to get so rich, right, when it was big and powerful, because it's very difficult to attack or yeah, steal from. Yeah, um,
0: it is. Although there were times when it was attacked. But, um, but yeah, it's really hard and it's very, very protected. And also it's just hard to find. Like mm. um, You have to know where it is in order to get there. Uh, And so the site as it is now is basically a fairly empty plain um, of the valley surrounded by rocks which are full of tombs um, because they carved tombs directly into the mountain faces. Um, It was abandoned in the 8th century kind of slowly over a lot of time and then was considered in Europe to be a lost city. Um, mm-hmm. A kind of mythical lost city of the kind of thing that like H. Ryder Haggard wrote stories about um, in King Solomon's Mines and all that stuff. Like there was a secret way into the secret city that was gloriously rich and da 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 da. Um, and no one would ever be able to find it. And it was mysterious and lost. And maybe it never even existed because um, maybe... It's like the
1: El Dorado of the Middle East.
0: Exactly. Um, so uh, in 1812, um, it was quote unquote rediscovered um by a Swiss guy called Johann Ludwig Bruckhart mm-hmm. um, who kind of knew that other people were searching for it but he kind of went deep um, moved to Syria converted to Islam disguised himself as an Arab renamed himself Sheikh Ibrahim ibn Ibdullah
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and then kind of like really immersed himself in the in the culture and then went kind of Trekked out, went to Cairo, then trekked out to try and uh, into the Negev with a guide. Um, and he said to the guide that he wanted to sacrifice a goat in some kind of Roman monument. Uh, so the guide was like, No, just the place. Took him straight to Petra, <laughs> where it turned out loads of Bedouin were still living there.
1: Yeah. And he hung around for a while, but they got suspicious because he asked too many questions.
0: Yeah. Um, and they were like, You're very pale. Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, So this is one of those situations where it's lost in the sense that just either they never asked anybody local in Jordan or Syria, or whenever some booming English twat turned up and said, you, sir, there, tell me where Petra is. They all just went, oh, I don't know. Um, Yeah, you seem weird. I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) To end the conversation as quickly as possible. (laughs) Yeah. So it was never lost. People always knew where it was. It's just no one was willing to tell the Europeans.
1: Yeah, none of the people who knew where it was were white. And so it doesn't count because colonialism. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: And so he gets remembered as the first person to lay eyes on it in, you know, a thousand years or whatever. But actually people were happily living there. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: Bedouin was still using it as a place until 1985. Um, yeah, wow. Well. When they were forcibly removed from the sites so that people could do archaeology there <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> which is just great
0: yeah which is good for archaeology and less yeah. good for the bedouin mm. um but anyway so it was never lost um just know i wanted to tell the english where it was which is fine um but it is a very 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 cool place um yeah. and it The reasons that it's cool are, one, that it has this amazing space. Like, it is in this really unique um, place in this almost inaccessible um, valley plain that is made of soft rock that is carvable. Um, And the second reason it's super-duper cool is because the Nabataeans um, managed to develop and maintain for a long period of time an ability to harness and collect and clean and um, distribute water both inside the city and in the surrounding area in order to turn the city into a massive garden, Uh. basically, and feed a huge agricultural um, farmlands, mostly growing dates and things, but basically growing agriculture, um in the middle of the desert yeah it's pretty um, badass it's extremely badass and the thing that everyone always says when they're writing about it when they're going there in the ancient world is like holy shit this is so green um, like <laughs> uh-huh. they have pleasure gardens like they do in rome except we're literally in the desert <laughs> yeah um because it has flash floods like there were huge rains and they collected all that water and um, put it in reservoirs and then had a process for um like distributing it very, very carefully, yeah, um, and accounting for it, which is amazingly cool. It's very, very cool,
1: and that's what um, let them go from like an, a nomadic tribe who found this place and decided to till there to this incredibly powerful, rich.
0: Place. Well, what manages to get the Nabataeans to that place um, is the spice trade, mm-hmm. um, which comes. So spices, particularly frankincense and incense and myrrh. Um, but also, um, so frankincense and myrrh come from Saudi Arabia um, and from Qatar Qatar, um, and are grown almost exclusively there. Um, and from the 8th century BC they are big in Italy <laughs> um, <laughs> and big in Europe particularly, but in Italy and Greece like they are really important parts of the religious um, life from very early in Roman history. Um, and all of that comes from Saudi Arabia and comes from the Sabaeans, um, which is like that southern part of the peninsula. Um, they can completely control that. But yeah. then things like pepper and cinnamon and cardamom and uh, perfumes and bitumen, which is asphalt, mm-hmm. um, all come from either the Arabian Peninsula or from India. Right. Um, <laughs> and so these great caravans travel from India through Pakistan um, and Iraq and Mesopotamia, um, and then um, other caravans are coming up from uh, Sabia, from down in Saudi Arabia, um, and then and like UAE, and they're coming up. And at the top is the Nabeans uh, the Nabateans, mm-hmm. who managed to um, position themselves as the trading partner. So. Whichever caravan is coming up or coming across, um, they go to the Nabataeans. Um, which,
1: which makes sense just location-wise because they're right there. They've got easy, easy access, access into Egypt, and then up into Syria and Turkey, and like they're just in the middle of everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, in the beginning, in like the very early um, centuries of this trade, um, in like the sixth, seventh. Century BCE, there's lots of tribes doing it, but the Nabataeans managed to become the guys, the mm. go-to guys, um, in part because they're very good militarily, um, and in part just by I don't know, being great negotiators. Um, I did make a claim, and I don't,
1: I don't know uh, how credible this is, but <laughs> that they started out just attacking other caravans, and became sort of the hard, the hard men, and then also hired themselves out to protect people's caravans. Um, from threats, which seems like a very um, the mob presentation <laughs> of events, you know.
0: Maybe the problem <laughs> don't is we we can can trust no, that have <laughs> no. We have no writing about them from the early period. Yeah. Um, the first time that the Nabataeans appear um, is in Diodorus Siculus when he is talking about um, Alexander's forces uh, raiding the land of the Nabataeans and um, besieging and sacking petra Mm -hmm. um in 312 Mm B.C.E. um so that's the first we know about them and at that point they are living seasonally in petra um but they also have a bunch of other places that they live in because they are um a large part of them are nomadic but they also have a military obviously and they also have um agriculture so they're a big kingdom um but that's the first time that we hear about them and they're already quite rich, but they're still primarily nomadic. Um, and Petra is one of their spaces where they will stop with their livestock, where they will leave women and children um, and where they will um, uh, kind of you know, protect themselves when they need to protect themselves because it's hard to get in basically. Yeah. Um, and what happens is that as Basically, as Rome gets richer and the demand for stuff um, in Italy gets stronger, um, the more that they can afford and want cool stuff from India and China and Mesopotamia and Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. um, the more that the Nabataeans get rich. Yeah. Um, And there is this point in 240 BCE where there is this really hard switch in the archaeology of Petra where they stop having what looks like occasional habitation and just the number and types of finds that you find just kind of explode off the roof. Um, And you start getting... Loads of coinage and loads of pottery from Greece and Rhodes and Italy and coins from Phoenicia and Persia and um, all over the place.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and that seems to be the point at which people start um, spending a real amount of time there. Uh, yeah. And when they start um, making it their real base rather than one of many bases. Mm-hmm. Um they kind of put down roots there and then it becomes their royal city. Um because it is a massive trading city. Like if you want to trade with any basically anyone further east than them, um, mm-hmm. then that's where you have to be. Yeah. Um, because so much of it is overland. Um when they come into contact with the Romans is when we start to actually learn about them as people, because the Romans like to write down everything they did, which is very good. Yes,
1: can be of them helpful.
0: Yeah. So, sixty three B.C.E. Pompey is lurking around. Um, I say lurking around. I mean violently overthrowing people with a massive <laughs> army. As you do, if you're... Pompey. <laughs> As you do when you are trying to make a name for yourself in Rome. You just go and fuck up some people in a distant place. Um, and, like, this is how Pompey made his name and became Pompey the Great is by fucking up the East. Mm-hmm. And he's fucked up Mithridates. He's beaten the out of everyone. He's given uh, Rome unopposed access to Asia and the Levant. Um, mm-hmm. And he's now poking at Palestine and Syria and Judea. True. Um And rolling up with his massive army and kind of peering over borders and saying, hello, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, and he turns Syria into a promise, and Syria are their next-door neighbours. Um, mm-hmm. We then, um, they start, they become a kind of client kingdom to the Romans because they want to get on with the Romans. Um mm-hmm. As you do. Why would you not yeah. want to get on the Why would the you not want to? Mostly, if you don't get on with the Romans, they will absolutely set fire to your house. Yeah, which, uh, which you don't want. <laughs> um, so they 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 get on basically, um, and about fifty years later, they um, do a joint military exibi- um, expedition with a guy mm-hmm. called Gallus, um, who's governor of Syria, and he decides that he is going to try and take on um, the Sabaeans down in. Saudi and Yemen. Um mm-hmm. so he reckons that he is going to be able to like the this twenty-six BCE, they've just taken Egypt. This is Augustus, they think that they are top of the world, so he overreaches a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, and he says, I reckon that I can take the Arabian Peninsula. Um uh-huh. and so he goes in with uh, some Roman troops. Um, and he befriends the Nabataean king, who's called mm-hmm. Um And Obidas provides uh, a thousand soldiers as a um, auxiliary, and yeah, that's then not also bad. gives him a guy that the Romans called Sileus as a guide and an advisor to like help him get through the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, and as literally every attempt to go into a desert by the Romans. Um, until Trajan um, it went fucking disastrous obviously, <laughs> obviously. Uh, <laughs> yeah it's real hard to do it's real hard to do and the Romans just could not understand deserts <laughs> 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 it's like they had a real problem with the whole thing yeah. um, and there's Strabo wrote this whole thing Strabo is a friend of Gallus's so he's very nice to him and acts like Silas, um I don't know tricked him into going into the desert <laughs> Um But basically, um, they managed to get into um, Yemen. They managed to get quite far, but they ran out of water Mm -hmm. um, and had to immediately turn back with huge losses. Um, And uh, it was just one of these, like, classic losses. The Sabaeans were like, we don't even know what's happening. Can you go away, please? Um, (laughs) And the Nabataeans in Petra were like, I don't think this was our fault. (laughs) Um, but they do get all of the blame for it uh, in Roman sources because obviously they do. Um, yeah. Sileus is great; he is like a government minister. He might have been related to Abed- Abedas, um mm-hmm. in some way, but he um, is goes to Rome at one point to ask him to ask Augustus to help the Nabataeans out with some border issues that they were having with Judea. So Judea is a province and um, is ruled by the Herods. And there's, like, constant fighting between mm-hmm. Judea and Nabatea over territory and who controls what. Sure. Um, Augustus listens and goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and while they're doing this, um, obidus dies. Sure. Convenient. And, yes. And Silius is in Rome at the time. Um, so Augustus, thinking he can make, like basically kill a lot of birds with one stone, is like, I will make seleus king. Um, and then I will have a king who likes me. I like this guy. Everything seems fine. I'll pop him on the throne. Then they'll be our friends still. We'll be a proper client kingdom. Everything will be great. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately for Augustus, seleus gets back to discover that they have already chosen their own king. Um, sure.
1: I mean, he was- yeah.
0: <laughs> he was a guy called Aratus the Fourth. Um, which Augustus and Slius were not happy about at all, um, because how dare anyone choose their own king and Augustus not do it. Um, This is why Roman emperors go mad, because they have this much power. Like, they're not part of the empire in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) No, Um, they just... uh... He has absolutely no right to be picking a king for these lads, but, But he thinks he does, and that's what matters. He really believes he does, and like he he threatens to completely dissolve the entire kingdom of Nabatea and hand the whole area over to judea
1: that seems a bit much
0: it, which is mad um <laughs> this is why they all go insane anyway yeah. eventually he backs down um and um aratus IV becomes the becomes a king um and he is the person who is responsible for turning petra into what it now is mm-hmm. um he um, focuses really hard on settlement. Um, we have the first settlement starts happening in like the first century BCE, but it's this period where um, all of the big stuff is built, where the desert irrigation is really invested in, um, mm-hmm. and where urbanisation is invested in. Um, and the reason that he does this is because the The conquest of Egypt has changed the face of the spice trade, basically. And there Mm -hmm. are fewer caravans going across. And people are now able to travel around the peninsula by boat Mm
1: -hmm. um,
0: and go straight up and then do a small bit across land into Alexandria. Sure. um, Which is kind of cutting into their profits so they pivot they do have other cities the Nabataean Kingdom has like three big cities um, and five reasonable cities Um, they set up a port and get really involved in um, port in that um, side of it so they do sail but mostly they get involved in taxing the shit out of people who sail (laughs) (laughs) I
1: mean yeah that makes sense
0: Yeah, and they take up to 25% um, like, in order to go round, you have to keep stopping basically for yeah. you know, food and water and stuff. Um, and also because mostly these boats are rowed. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's exhausting uh, to do. It's real tiring. Sometimes your enslaved people just drop dead. So yeah. um, every time they stop in their ports, um, they're taking a lot of their money. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and he is then investing all of that money. In turning Petra into a a, a gorgeous space, um, mm-hmm. he builds a huge theater which seats eight thousand people. He builds temples um, and most importantly, the thing that he builds is that um, that facade that you see when you go into Petra, which is literally the first thing that you see yeah, um, I was watching a video uh, of a Spanish guy. Walking through the sink, um, and then cut you when you come out of the end of it. The first thing that you see when you go into Petra is that facade, that famous facade, mm. um, and that is the tomb of Aratus the Fourth.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, it's
0: it's an impressive tomb. It is a very impressive tomb. The reason it's so impressive is because he commissioned the craftsmen who built it to. Not just carve it directly into the face, the exposed face, but to carve a frame, basically like a massive niche, mm-hmm. or niche into the thing, uh, into the rock, and then carve out the the design. Right. Um, so it is protected from wind. It is protected from sand blowing on it, and it is protected <laughs> from water running down the rock face mm-hmm. um, because everything just kind of goes across it, which is why it is so magnificently preserved. Yeah. Um, Unlike everything else in Petra, which is uh, less... I mean, it's very cool looking, but it looks eroded as fuck. Sure, yeah. (laughs) That'll happen. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, so they're making a fortune. Pliny the Elder claims that the Nabataeans were taking 50 million sesterces a year for incense alone. Yeah. I don't really
1: know what that means in in real money, but it sounds impressive.
0: I mean, if you have one sesterce, you're doing all right. Yeah. An average daily wage is seven sesterces in the early empire. That's a good daily wage. So that's like two grand a year. So 50 million a year is good. It's pretty good. Yeah. And that's just incense, not including taxes and the other things. Yeah. Yeah. You're sitting pretty. Yeah, Um, so they're doing great. Um, Aratus then, um, being very clever, marries his daughter to Herod Antipas, who Mm -hmm. is the king of Judea. Um, So he's even made friends with the Judeans, which is a big deal because they do not like each other very much. Mm -hmm. Um, Which takes a bit of a turn when Herod divorces the daughter and then marries his sister-in-law. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's awkward Which was taken as a grave insult for obvious reasons mm-hmm. um, and Aratas invaded Judea um, and beat them up a little bit Sure um, <laughs> uh, This incidentally is the marriage that John the Baptist protests against um, Oh sure, yeah and This is the wife, who, the sister-in-law is the wife who beheads John the Baptist Yeah So if he'd stayed married to Aratas' daughter, that never would have happened. Yeah. We wouldn't have heard all those paintings.
1: They're great paintings, though. I love (laughs) a good painting of Salome. It's never never a dull time.
0: Exactly. Um, Tiberius then attempts to invade Nabatea, um, which could have been another time when they lost their independence um, and became part of the Roman Empire. But instead, um, Tiberius died. So Mm. that... Uh, solved a lot of problems for a lot of people, to be honest, but also the Nabataeans. (laughs) (laughs) So while all of that is happening, what you have in Petra Mm -hmm. is a massively growing population um, of people who are wildly multicultural. Um, The architecture is Nabataean and Greek and Persian and Roman all mixed together. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the... Uh, inscriptions in all of the tombs you have people calling themselves strategoi and centurion and other things and it's just a really multicultural space Mm -hmm. um where people are coming from pretty much all over the world to chill and look at the amazing gardens because they have pleasure gardens in the desert yeah sounds, Um, sounds delightful it does sound delightful um, and I recommend watching the video. I will put this video in the link because in the show notes. Um, it is by a guy called Manuel Bravo, which I hope is his real name. Um, <laughs> but most importantly, it has images of not just like the two buildings that you see in everything, like not just the theater and Aratus' tomb. Like sure. a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they're doing great. Um, they keep building tombs. There is a theory that um, Petra becomes like a, a a specific city of the dead where um, people from throughout Nabatee are paid to be buried because it is a sacred place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why there are so many tombs there because there are a lot of tombs there. Sure. Like every inch of it is covered in tombs carved into the rock, Yeah, um, which is very impressive but feels like like if you're sitting in your pleasure garden having a nice cup of tea um, or a you know a lovely glass of wine and you've you're, you're at the bottom and there's a lot of dead people just looking right at you yeah going it's all the way up the mountains all the way around
1: <laughs> it's also a fun thing to be like this is actually a lovely place to like live there's all this you know free flowing water there's pleasure gardens it's delightful so we'll just go there when we
0: did yeah um, I just would feel watched I think is the issue yeah. um, I just I think I would feel like they were looking at me <laughs> um, and th- I think that would make me uncomfortable but maybe if there were lots of trees you wouldn't notice them as much it- they look really obvious now that there's zero trees um, yeah
1: yeah but when it was all green maybe it yeah, yeah it um,
0: a more secluded yeah Anyway, so that's how Petra is getting on until um, 106 CE when the Emperor Trajan um, took advantage of a king dying um, and just annexed it.
1: Sure. Chill to do. Good, Good work, Trajan.
0: Trajan was just a relentless... All he wanted was to expand and expand and expand. He thought he was a kind of Alexander figure and he just wanted to stamp on everyone, mm.
1: um,
0: which he did, largely. He stamped on the Parthians, he stamped on the Dacians, he stamped on people that the Romans hadn't been able to even get close to touching for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so he stamped the shit out of people. And then he also took advantage, like, whereas other emperors would put in another client king, when... Um, when someone died under Trajan's reign, the king was called Rebel. Um, He died and um, Trajan was like, mm, no, kings are out, emperor's are in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am the emperor now. Um, he doesn't seem to have actually invaded them in any way. He just was like, I'm not going to bother to give you a new king. I'm going to be your king now. Um, he just kind of walked in and said, I'm in charge. Pretty much. I don't think he even bothered to walk in himself. He just sent a governor (laughs) in and said, I'm not sending you a king, I'm sending you a governor. Um, Uh uh, And so he turned the kingdom of Nabatea into the province of Arabia Petria, Mm -hmm. um, with Petra as its capital. And we have this very, very cool set of documents from this time, um, Mm -hmm. which are the... Life's Legal Proceedings of a Woman called Babatha, Daughter of Simeon.
1: Great name. Babatha is yes. an excellent name.
0: Why it is a really using good name. That one? Um, I don't know. I, I feel like Jews maybe still use that. Um, but Babatha is a good name. Great name. Um, so she's born in 104 in mm-hmm. Nabataea to Judean parents who had moved um, from Judea to Nabataea, bought some land, and were growing figs, running a fig farm. Mm-hmm. Um, we know this because we have the contract that lays out their purchase, how much they paid for it, all of the rules and expectations, mm-hmm. um, and where they were going to get their water from, how much water they're allowed to use, um, the guarantee and obligations of the water.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it, in 120, her father gave his properties to his wife Um and that document is not dated as the previous document is to the um, Nabataean king's regnal year, mm-hmm. but it's dated to the reign of Hadrian. Okay. Um, And we have all of these other documents from her life where we see this switch um, from using the Nabataean legal system to using the um, Roman legal system, right. which is very peaceful and everyone seems very chill about it. Um, sure. But she lives a very, like, she lives this ridiculous life. <laughs> um, but it's just very fun that we know so much about her. So she inherits her father's properties, mm-hmm. all of their farms. Um, she marries a guy called Jesus, son of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a son who's called Jesus. So he's Jesus, son of Jesus, son of Jesus. Sure. Um, she is his second wife. Mm-hmm. Um, he then dies. Uh, and so she marries again. Um, to a guy called Judah. Uh-huh. Um, he is useless, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she, like, Babatha kept everything. So um, he borrows money from her. He borrows money from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, he borrows tons of um, property from people in order to cover the... Um, dowry of his daughter uh-huh. um, and then he dies um, owing Babatha 700 denarii sure um, and so she takes his other wife to court in order to fight over um, whether she owns his possessions because he owed her so much money uh-huh. um, or whether they should just inherit them as wives um, sure. so that's quite fun Um and she also has this other ongoing dispute with the state um, mm-hmm. because she is given two guardians for her son because, under Roman law, she can't um, represent her son and he's a minor. So she's got two male guardians for him who are supposed to represent his interests. And she complains that they're not giving her enough money. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so she takes him to court repeatedly. Sure. Great. Um, two yours. She- yeah, she also buys a donkey. Um, at one point. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're handy to have. You've got to, yeah. You've got to have a donkey. She owns all these farms. Anyway, yeah. the reason that we know all of this is that um, there was an uprising um, in Judea
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, under the Emperor Hadrian, uh, called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. That was is often described as kind of a minor dispute, um, mm-hmm. but. Um Barbatha fled with her family um, and like 30 other people uh, to the caves um, mm-hmm. of, outside of Petra. Um, they hid in a cave, uh, along with a bunch of other possessions that they took with them, um, sealed themselves inside in the hope that they would be able to come outside when the violence was over. Yeah. Um, and she took with her all her legal documents so that she would be able to continue her cases when she got out. You don't um, want to get out and just find you,
1: you've fucked your lawsuit because you lost a document.
0: Exactly. Unfortunately, she never got out. Mm, um, I did sense that coming. <laughs> and she was not rediscovered until 1960. Oh, man, <laughs> Um So uh, she never really got any more money for her, her thing. Um, but um, the useful thing about it is it shows that the transfer of power from the Nabataean kings to the Roman governors and the Roman situation was pretty simple and life basically mm. continued as it had. Like, not a lot changed yeah. except Roman law Um and everybody just kept going as they were going. They were still making their money, although that money was now going to the Roman state. Sure. Um That goes on until the 19th of May, 363, Mm -hmm. Um, when there is a massive earthquake that takes down a lot of that entire area up through Israel and Palestine um, and um, takes down a lot of cities. And a letter from that era says that more than half of Petra was destroyed. Which is a bummer. It is a bummer. Yeah. That letter does also say that every single person in Jerusalem spontaneously became a Christian and praised the Lord. (laughs) Seems unlikely. Pinch of salt for that one. Yeah. Um, But that was believed for a very long time to be the end of Petra. Um, Mm -hmm. And I found this great quote from 1974 um, from a guy called Browning in a book about Petra. Um, After 363, the vitality of the people was sapped by squalor. Without even a vain hope, a sort of torpor settled across Petra, life being an existence valid for its own precarious self and not for any prospect of achievement. Oh, my God. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Jesus, calm down. Absolutely no idea what imaginary world this guy is getting that from. um but basically it was believed for a long time that um yeah the 363 this massive earthquake throws down a lot of buildings Mm -hmm. um and that they were never rebuilt and that everybody just went oh everyone just gave up i guess we had a good time but it's over now (laughs) (laughs) um and left um just wandered off and then nobody saw it again until 1812 um uh, except apparently these like squalid people living like morlocks <laughs> just kind of sitting around being sad being sad and gazing out of windows yes um yeah. that is not true uh, yeah no sounds fake it's, it was fake um Well the archaeology now shows that actually there's quite a lot of buildings still going on and like expensive buildings still going on. Like Mm -hmm. stuff is rebuilt. The big temple is not rebuilt and that is kind of the a bad sign. But partly this is because everyone's moved on to Christianity.
1: (laughs) Yeah, also in my experience of earthquakes that destroy massive religious buildings, the 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 process to get them rebuilt is really complicated and fucked up. Like, yeah. the, the Christchurch Cathedral debacle was um, a nightmare of, of about whether we should rebuild that. It just—it just—it's complicated. It's
0: complicated. It is complicated, and people argue over it, and particularly they argue over it in 363, around about the point where um, the entire empire is converting to Christianity, where it's just become properly legal, mm. um, and where there are very difficult and um, ongoing conversations about what to do with the pagan past. Um, When some people are still worshiping, a lot of people are not. When there is um, on and off um, imperial uh, pogroms against pagans, against Christians back and forth, like do we set fire to these buildings? Do we destroy them? Which some people are doing, like they are destroying deliberately um yeah. pagan stuff um or do we preserve it or what do we do so yeah within that situation a very expensive rebuilding of a very big temple um yeah. not top of everyone's list no What what they did do is build a ton of churches sure yeah um nice ones too with nice mosaics lovely mosaics um if you google the church of petra or the petra church um mm-hmm. and you see all of these beautiful mosaics of like little deer and lovely birds and pretty trees Aww. um and they're lovely like they're expensive delicate nice yeah. things um and there's this church called the blue church or the blue chamber church um where they've gone for a real blue theme mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> with <laughs> um uh, in the center there's this um egyptian blue granite mm-hmm.
1: um
0: which is a pale blue. You have to squint to see the blue, but it's <laughs> blue themed. Um, and so they've, you know, they've gone and got that. So they are spending. There are still lots of people there spending money throughout yeah. the fourth, fifth centuries, properly in investing the-
1: in buildings that they expect to use
0: indefinitely,
1: rather than just like squatting because they can't exactly. They were not.
0: What was it? Without even a vain hope. Living in torpor, life being <laughs> existent ballet for its own precarious you self. You don't build beautiful mosaics <laughs> when you're living in torpor. No, you don't. Um, <laughs> but um, what does happen is that through the 7th century, there does start to be a population decline, um, mm-hmm. in part because of what's going on in the wider empire. Um I found an archaeologist called Patricia Bicai who speculated that basically, you, once you have the architecture and the infrastructure of Petra, mm-hmm. needs to be constantly maintained, like on a daily basis. Sure, um, yeah, it's soft rock, sandstone, and you need to be constantly repairing and maintaining all of the channels and reservoirs and drains and. Um, What's the word? Cisterns and all of it. Yeah. Um, and also, there are flash floods which need to be protected against. Yeah. Um, so her theory is that when you start to get people move away, you have fewer people who are doing that maintenance, which leads to problems with the infrastructure, which leads to hard life, which leads to people leaving, which leads to fewer people doing the maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that
1: because they already stopped being quite as rich as they had been it's expensive to do in you know
0: yeah and the basically things have moved away the uh, royal court moves away from petra um quite early on in the like the end of the first century mm-hmm. um so it is no longer a royal city um and it is the capital of um arabia petraea mm-hmm. but there are other bigger cities in the area um, yeah. so Bostra is a really which is in Syria is a really important city um, and other places take precedence basically sure. um, and if you want to make a life for yourself within the Byzantine Empire then you move somewhere else Um so people leave um, and gradually leave there is um, Also within the agriculture, the rural settlement is contracting, like people are leaving and the population is clearly um, relocating, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And things are localising a lot. So people are not producing for export anymore. They are producing for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, just to sell in the area rather than across an entire empire. Um, And you see this contraction until... Basically, by the beginning of the 7th century, for no particularly clear reason, there are not that many people living in Petra anymore. It's not a city anymore, really. It is Mm. a place where people go to loot the shit out of it. Yeah. uh, Because all of those tombs are full of cool stuff.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And people do loot the shit out of it. uh, And people... and. You know, people start to use it as it was previously, as a space to graze animals and to camp and um, be a a seasonal space for um, nomadic people, Mm -hmm. um, like the Bedouin, who are still there until, as I say, 1985. Um, And then it's used in that way. But in the west it becomes this kind of like with the rediscovery of roman stuff in the middle ages the end of the middle ages um and when they started going around finding manuscripts in monasteries um Mm. and they started hearing about petra and the way that petra is always described is this incredible place this garden city in the desert um which they did not believe could happen like just yeah (laughs) they were just like oh yeah sounds fake um (laughs) Uh, or sounds magical, or sounds like white people there. Um, <laughs> and it takes on much like Timbuktu did, like um, this, or El Dorado, this mythical, amazing thing, like that surely non white people couldn't have managed this something so incredible. Um, mm. Until, as I say, Johan turns up and says, Oh, hey, I found it. All I did was ask <laughs> someone. <laughs> No, like, there it is. There it is. It's over there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's basically the history of Petra. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um. Um,
1: it's been currently also going on, like, there's been, obviously, it sucks. And it it's complicated that it's been um, a boon for archaeology and sucks for the Bedouins and that it has been um, a site of massive digs, but also a lot of restoration as part of the archaeological exploration, yeah. which is which is nice, I guess.
0: Oh my God, I found this article. I tweeted about it. Yes, so I found this article, which is from 2007, the Smithsonian Magazine. Mm -hmm. Um, And it describes um, these uh, American excavations which were happening in the theatre and temple complex and a woman called Martha Sharp (laughs) Jawalski. I'm going
1: read this as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it literally describes her... um, like standing on the top of the pits wearing like a general's uniform <laughs> um and here we go. Um, as I climb down into the trench, it feels as I am entering a battlefield. Amid the heat and the dust, jakowski is commanding the excavators like a general, an impression reinforced by her khaki clothes and the gold insignias on the bill of her baseball cap. Yalla, yalla, she yells at the Bedouin workers in Dig Arabic. Get to work, get to work. <laughs> um, And then they're uncovering this. A worker hands her a piece of Roman glass and a tiny pottery rosette. She pauses to admire them and then sets them aside and continues barking at the diggers as they pass rubber buckets filled with dirt out of the trench. You're like, this is 2007. That could be just screaming at native workers as Uh though they are fucking camels. (laughs) Yeah.
1: as if they yeah. could possibly do their jobs without her screaming at them to do their jobs.
0: Pretty much. And yeah. she's like this wild-sounding 70-year-old woman um, shouting. Yeah. Um, and then all of the pictures, again, like look quite a lot like, I don't know, like, <laughs> like a 19th century thing uh, with just white people standing over, lots of non-white people shouting at them. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. It's um, it's not great,
0: it's not great, yeah, um, but they are finding cool stuff there,, yeah, that's uh, nice. Yeah, um, it would it be is. nice if
1: we could find a way to do that that didn't suck,
0: I' <laughs> nice if we could find a way to do anything that didn't suck, <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, but yeah, and that's the history of Petra. in nineteen eighty five it became a world heritage site um. Mm-hmm which means that uh, it gets kind of some protection and things. Um, and yeah, uh, it's got lots of lots of archaeology going on there and also tourism, which fucks up everything because people touch things.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. And Just... walk all over things and erode the soil. So the reason that the Bedouin were turfed out was because their livestock would eat all of the vegetation. Mm-hmm. Um and then that would make the topsoil, which is sand basically, um, loose. I would loosen that and then the it would blow around in the winds and it was a, it erodes off everything a lot quicker. Sure. Um, obviously. Um them so so red- basically move out and get livestock
1: with them and now instead tourists
0: can do all that. And now said tourists walk all over it and drive around um, in buses um, and destroy all of it. But that's different. Yeah,
1: um, it does uh, suck cause I really do want to go there.
0: I would absolutely <laughs> love to go there. Uh, it was definitely one of my like top places. Yeah, I, I to be like one to of go. the
1: terrible tourists that's ruining this beautiful ancient city.
0: Yeah. Um, and it's like, I don't know. Uh, one of the few places in the area that you can go to and not be like what monstrosities am I contributing to <laughs> <laughs> um or do I need a, an entire set of bodyguards like I would really love to go to Libya, yeah, yeah. Libya is incredible for like ancient stuff, I mean gorgeous in general, um but um, yeah, right now, I think on the thing it's like do not under any circumstances. <laughs> Um, unless you wish to die. Yeah. Um, but all of these places are gorgeous. Like, I'm going through a real phase at the moment, particularly with the obviously the Roman stuff of um, North Africa and the Levant and Mesopotamia and their Roman history, which and it's just not talked about that often. Like, yeah, Rome ends. People are willing to talk about Roman France or Roman yeah. Europe, but. Not so willing to talk about Roman anywhere else.
1: Well, we're um, not really ready to talk about like our own empire's effect on other countries. Like Roman, Roman, the Roman impact on Europe is like, yeah, this is our history, and they did this to us, and the conquered, and isn't it great because we, you know, we were part <laughs> of the Roman Empire. But when you spread further afield, it's like, oh yeah, we fucked. We've been fucking things up
0: all the world <laughs> since ages ago. Yes. Wow, well, it's
1: not as comfortable.
0: It's not. Well, the um, I mean, there's a whole complicated situation with um, uh, the British Empire being the new Roman Empire, and also a very complicated British identity around like Boudicca and the British yeah. occupation by the Romans, whereby we both want to be the Romans and also be the plucky upstarts who try to resist them. And you're like, pick yeah. one. You do not get to be both. <laughs> you can't be Sejanus and Boudicca <laughs> um, yeah. and yet the, such is the impressive dual thinking the yeah. ability to hold two ideas at the same time of British identity that we actually can yeah it's impressive um, really and we can think that Julius Caesar and Boudicca are both brilliant yeah it is impressive really um, I think this is one of the reasons I did an interview with her a Turkish magazine recently Um And they were asking me about why I like the Romans. Um, And I was like, because um, there is such a complicated relationship, like working out Roman identity and your relationship to the Romans as a British person is a lot like working out what your relationship is to Britain. Mm. (laughs) Because we've invested so much of our identity in Roman Empire. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, It's fascinating, really.
0: It is. It is. But that's a question for a different time.
1: Yeah. Um, what's, that was That was a question for next time.
0: The question from next time I'm going to butcher this person's name so I'm just going to say it like three different ways and hope that <laughs> one of them is right. <laughs> um, so name is either Sarah Mayshlankom or Sarah Mayshlankom. Perhaps No, I'm going to go with one of those. Maysh or Mayshlankom. Mm-hmm. Um And Sarah has asked um, about some of the conspiracies of the French Revolution because she is very gross, Um, like books made out of human skin um, Mm -hmm. and other monstrosities that were allegedly committed during the French Revolution. So we can talk about the French Revolution.
1: Yeah, that'll be fun.
0: Yeah, There's less archaeology for you.
1: Yeah, that's
0: nice.
1: (laughs) Just some some blood and death.
0: Just some blood and death and human skin. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, if you would like to ask us a question, you can do so at history60.com. There's a nice little comment form there for you to use. and You can, you can indeed. Um, you can find the show notes there, and you can buy merch there, and you can support us on Ko-fi there. And that is everything, I think.
0: I think yes. so, yeah. yeah. Um, everything is there. Send us a message. We'll probably not get back to you but we will read it and appreciate it yeah um, you can buy us coffee we always appreciate that um and yeah until next time i think that's everything i think it is all right bye Janina. bye, bye.